Hi, and welcome to Pivotal Moment. I'm your host, Nikita Faustin. If you've ever, ever thought about writing a book, or if you've written one already, we've got a treat for you today. We are talking with author and professor, Dr. Margina Christian. Dr. Christian is the author of Empire, the house that John H. Johnson built. It's the eye-opening story of the man behind Ebony Magazine, Jet Magazine, Fashion Fair Cosmetics, and the empire known as JPC, Johnson Publishing Company. The book debuted on Amazon's Top 100 for African-American History Books even before the official release this past November, and it's been at the top of the charts ever since. With the forward by Jesse Jackson Sr. and accolades from distinguished leaders, including Northwestern's interim dean, Charles Whitaker, this tale weaves together history and truth from an insider's perspective. Dr. Christian spent more than two decades working for JPC and directly with Mr. Johnson as a member of the Jet Magazine team. Now she's a professor with her own publishing company, and she joins us today to tell us about how she brought this story to life and how you can too. All right, Dr. Christian, so talk about life in general since the release of the book. First of all, the response has been overwhelming. The book, when it came out for pre-sales, it was amazing and that it started selling so quickly that on the first day, it became one of Amazon's top 100 in the African-American history category. To be exact, it climbed all the way to number 60, and that was on the first day of pre-sales. And at one point, it was even above Lerone Bennett's classic, Before the Mayflower. I was totally blown away. (laughs) You didn't expect that. Very pleased. I expected a warm uh, reception, but that just totally blew me away. Wow. Wow. So the response, because I've seen you on TV, I've heard you on the radio, um, the press and the public has been really responsive to the message and the book that you're sharing here. What's been most surprising about all of the love that you've gotten? What's been most surprising about the love I've gotten is that there are new audiences who are being introduced to John H. Johnson and what it is that he did. A lot of people are not quite familiar with the magazines in modern times. Specifically, there's just Ebony. There is no more Jet Magazine, the weekly publication. So the response that is really exciting for me is the fact that new generations, new audiences are being introduced to the legacy of John H. Johnson and what it is that he did. That's such a good point. And you spent several years at JET um, as this incredible writer, and everybody knows that about the work that you've done. Talk about your time at JET and how that relationship with Mr. Johnson really got you to this point, how you were able to develop the rapport to write the kinds of story that you've created here. Well, I started at Johnson Publishing Company in 1995. And I was hired by John H. Johnson and his daughter, Linda Johnson Rice. And it was interesting because when I went in for the interview, I actually had my sights set on being a writer with Ebony Magazine, the monthly. Mm -hmm. And it was Mr. Johnson, as we called him, who told me that he felt Jet would be the best place for me because I would be able to write the kinds of stories I enjoyed, which mainly were entertainment-oriented pieces, and he was so right. But from 95 until his death in 2005, I had a relationship, as did the other editors of Jet, 
that was very different, uh, very unlike the editors with Ebony Magazine in that the editors would get, in addition to being the weekly, we had meetings every day because we were constantly looking for new content. And in order for that to take place, we had to meet. And we met with him. And it was a different type of process, as I mentioned, unlike others, in that what really made him tick. We were able to see how he was able to select stories and how we were able to brainstorm and bounce ideas off each other. And that relationship made us closer to him because we were that group of people who saw him every day, uh, each day. You know, not just every day, but, you know, mm-hmm. week after week after week, month after month after month. And even when he got sick, we were still meeting with him and it was on the 11th floor of his private suite yeah. and we'd go into one of his uh, rooms where it was a um, meeting room and that's where we would meet with him even when he could no longer come down to the ninth floor which was mm-hmm. uh, traditionally in the Johnson Publishing Building the executive suite floor we would go up to his floor because he was still very hands-on. Absolutely. Jet was his baby, and he never took his hands off his baby. And so during those meetings and during those conversations and over those years, when did you start to get the idea that you might one day write a book? Or when did that seed actually get planted? And when did you decide, this is what I'm going to do? I never had a seed that I felt was ever planted before 2010. Okay. It wasn't something I actually thought about. Mm. But in 2010, that's when things changed for me. Mr. Johnson died in 2005. But in 2010, there were a lot of things happening at the company that were unsettling to me. A lot of things that I observed. And in the words of the great Fannie Lou Hamer, I got sick and tired of being sick and tired of some things that I saw happening. And I wanted to find another way to expend my energy. And one way that I decided to do that was to go back to school to get my doctorate. I'd always taught since 97. Uh, I was an adjunct English professor at City Colleges of Chicago at a variety of the schools. And I knew that I did not want to retire in that industry, and I knew I would not retire at that company. So I had to prepare for tomorrow, and in doing that, I, I needed to look at what was going on today. And at that time, the today was 2010, and that moment that made me decide I want to go to school to get my doctorate. Okay. My concentration was adult education, and I figured this is a way that I could help in terms of making certain that Mr. Johnson's legacy remains. Education is the way, and especially when we're looking at higher ed, that's definitely something that people look at and respect. And in terms of me being a researcher and a scholar, I knew I had to take it to another level, and that's what I did. So 2010 is when I decided to do the dissertation. Now, at that time, I still wasn't thinking about doing a book because that wasn't something that, you know, had even entered my mind either. But when you write a dissertation, the next step in the natural progression is for it to turn into a book. So this felt right, and it only made sense. Absolutely. I had to do additional research. 
So I ended up getting my doctorate in 2013, but I had to do additional research. So I have only two pieces of research out there, and that's for my dissertation and then the research that I conducted to move the book along. So those are the only two, and I put those together, and that's where I am. And that's how I came up with the book. And so the pivotal moment then is 2010 when you decided to go for your doctorate after thinking maybe these things that are going on at Johnson Publishing aren't exactly where I want to go. So it was 2010, you think? 2010 was definitely my pivotal moment when I saw things and I knew Mm. it's important that this legacy remains intact because I saw things changing. I had no clue how drastic they would change or even how suddenly. But I just knew and I saw that one day John H. Johnson will be no more. And I had no clue that it would be his empire would no longer be in existence. The magazines would no longer be known the way that they were revered and known historically during the times in which he was uh, behind those publications. I am well aware that nothing stays the same. Change is inevitable. It's a part of life. It's something that I welcome. However, we must find a way to preserve our history and to continue to document our legacy. And that's the part that I saw fading away. And I wanted to say, this is something that has to continue and to remain. How can I do that? And that's when the research began. I needed to look at Johnson in a different way. And that was my pivotal moment. Mm. And talk about, because it's really a good point about looking at Mr. Johnson in a different way. People outside of Johnson Publishing Company may have a certain idea about what happens or what's happening, but you were there and you were sitting beside Mr. Johnson. How is that different from the perception people have? Because we were both there for some time and It's much more like a family in some respects. And there are some things that really do change you positively. So talk about that. When you're on the outside looking in, things are always very different. And even when people came inside, what they thought wasn't always what truly was. I was there and I saw things that happened when he was alive. And I saw things that happened after his death. And for me, I would say that some Change, once again, is inevitable. It's something that has to be welcomed, you know. And if you're not willing to change, there's going to be discomfort, you know. And those types of things kind of come along with the territory. The company was more or less a family. And it was not ran in a traditional way in that the family, we saw these people. Most of the employees who worked at the company had been there for two decades or longer. That's something that's unheard of that you don't often see. So we considered ourselves to be the JPC family, Mm -hmm. and that's what we were. But things changed when other people came in, and it was no longer a family. Um, Just the dynamics changed, and that was something that uh, it was the growing pain. And then there was a, a part where I felt that, There was an identity crisis Mm. because when you no longer have the person in place who helps to give the magazine their identity, you're going to have that happen because those people are going to sprinkle in their influences. And that's kind of what happened. And from there, things just kind of took on a life of its own. And um, there you have it. And talk about, because now you're a professor, you got your doctorate, you have these students that you are teaching and instructing every day. 
How have they responded to the limelight that you're in and the word that you're sharing? Well, first of all, they see me as Dr. Christian, and they'll see a picture or read a story, and they'll go, ooh, and they'll go, ah, but it's business as usual. Okay. And I've had many students who remembered when I had them, and I started working on the book, and they see that it's out, and it's like, oh, wow, we remember when you were talking about it. Oh, we're so happy for you. So that kind of backing is fantastic. And my gift to the students is that I'm actually teaching a class on editing and publishing because this journey has been very interesting. And I remember Mr. Johnson said that in every disadvantage, there's an advantage, and in every problem, there's a gift. And then the problem that became my gift was the fact that I initially set out to go to a traditional publishing house, and I ended up self-publishing, which was not my first choice. And what happened was I found out that my research was being taken by someone who did not look like me. Oh, wow. And this man was taking my work, and he was basically trailing my every move, watching what I was doing. and ended up going to the same publishing house that uh, had an interest in me. Oh my God. And somebody from that publishing house was working to help him take my work. It was something that I said, wait a minute, right. you know, and I had to get an attorney involved. And first of all, it felt like a combination of being in the Twilight Zone, <laughs> Night Gallery, all mixed into one, where I could not believe that, Someone would do this, wow. uh, you know, under the guise of research. Mm. But there were things in my research that no one else would have known or sure. had. Sure. And also, I had only two pieces of research, and this man aligned himself with my only two pieces of research. And what happened was, I was very resistant. And my attorney and I had other people who advised me to well, publish. And I know that when you think of self-publishing, people sometimes think the lesser than of your work. And I had someone tell me that it's not the publishing house, it is the person and it's the work that you're representing that people will look at. Yes. I still wasn't quite, you know, interested in self-publishing because when you're academic level and you want to do more to get tenure, they want you to have a book at an academic publishing, you know, yes. house. Oh, I was angry because this, in my mind, had jeopardized my, you know, abilities to have that happen and take place. So I just remember one day, and this was really just kind of off the cuff, you know, one night I had fallen asleep on the couch and I woke up and The Martian was on and I didn't think anything of it. I just remember, oh, that, that movie did well at the box office. Sure. But then a couple of days later, I had fallen asleep again. But this time, I saw the beginning of The Martian, and I watched the movie through. And, you know, it just stood out. I just remember the accolades, the praise. Uh, but when it came time for me to revisit the possibility of self-publishing, then I had to do my research, and I said, I want to find out if anyone has had success yes. that I can put my hands on who has done this. And the first name I saw was Andy Weir, and wow. Andy Weir is the same man who did The Martian. That's confirmation right there. Yes, and when his book was self-published in those early stages, it was optioned for a movie, Ooh. and then... 
when it was optioned for a movie, it was eventually picked up by a major publishing house. And I looked at that as my confirmation that this is what I'm supposed to do. And in me doing this, the gift that I have is ownership. Yes. I own my copyright right. and my ISBN. And in the process, I learned how to self-publish. So mm-hmm. now I can teach others how to do what I did. And I'm also very vocal in raising awareness about protecting your research. Yes. Some of the biggest thieves are in the academy. Mm. People who are so-called scholars who have stolen other people's work. And it's very common for them to steal from minorities. Wow. It happens all the time. And they believe that we're too ignorant to not know. But you have to be careful. Protect your work. And for any scholar who is working on a dissertation and about to graduate, before you put it on ProQuest, I would say make certain that you embargo it. If you ever have intentions of doing a book, even if you don't, because once again, there are scholars, especially in different countries, who sit back and prey upon people of color and their blood, sweat, and tears in doing research. And this happens. That is unreal. I love that you're educating the public, educating your students, educating others who might want to write about what the pitfalls are and what to look for. So how is this process of writing the book? self-publishing, how has that changed you personally? Because it sounds like you're really aware of the process and the industry now. What other ways has it changed you? It has made me aware and it gave me an enormous respect for what Mr. Johnson did. Yes. Because he learned, I worked with this man, this pioneer who was a publisher, and it gave me a whole new respect of the business behind publishing. Once you write a book, that's the easy part. The hard part is figuring out, how do you put this book together? You have to work with the distribution company. You have to look at, you know, how much are you paying? You know, you have to look at what you're putting out. I had to go from working with people who were once my colleagues at Johnson Publishing Company Mm -hmm. to hire these people to work for me. As to do my layout for the cover, to do the developmental editing, and to do copy editing. So I had to go from the actual author to being the actual publisher. And I have my own publishing company because of this. And it has been, once again, a huge learning curve. And I look back and I'm so thankful for it because throughout all of the pitfalls, throughout Mm -hmm. all of the things that were taking place, I'm able to give back to others and especially to my students because I have so many of them who their dream is to be a best-selling author and to write. And they look for others to validate them. And I tell them that you cannot look to others to validate you. Uh, They look to people to be their literary agent. Well, I had a literary agent at one point and the person wanted something more salacious. And that wasn't what my research was about. Mm -hmm. And I tell them about Andy Weir, who was turned down, but, you know, literary agent after literary agent who did not see value in his work. When people do not value you, you have to value yourself. So I want to teach them to be their own boss. Because in the words of the late, great Prince Rogers Nelson, 
if you do not own your masters, your master will own you. That is such a great piece of advice. And I want to talk and circle back about your publishing company because that is such a phenomenal idea and a really a way to teach what you have learned on a global scale. So how do you advise people who are now coming to you or coming to your publishing company and they have this great idea, but they don't know where to start? Where do you start if you have an idea for a book? First of all, it is a process. Not everyone who has an idea for a book wants to publish that book. And that's what I'm teaching my students. We're going twofold. We're learning about developmental editing. And then our second half of our semester, we're looking at the actual publishing process itself. Because I want them to, if they decide to do a book, they need to understand what is involved. A lot of people have the seed planted. They have an idea. But there are things that go into developing this. You know, what is it that's going to make your book stand out? You have to research the market, uh, your competition. You have to look at ways to develop your content. How are you going to sharpen that thesis and really make that the through line or the hook of your book? So that in and of itself is a lengthy, extensive process. And then you have to get into the writing of this. That's very time-consuming. How long did it take for you to write the book, Margina, by the way? How long did it take you to write the book? The book itself, I would say that my research, so I, after my dissertation was completed in 2013, I would say that the book was finished in about 2015. Okay. And then in 2015, is when I started to do additional research because it went from being scholarly Mm -hmm. to I wanted it to have a trade focus for general audiences. And I had to do more of a composite of him, the man, as opposed to that scholarly aspect, which would have decreased the number of people who would have been able to understand what it was I was doing. However, with my book, you will notice that I do have a bibliography. I do have notes. So it is rooted in research, but in that research are also real experiences, which makes it interesting when someone dares to take any of my work because in it are are morsels and bits of things. So it's this tightly woven story with research and real experiences. So all of that together. Um, and so back to answering your question, I would say from 2013 until 20, I would say it took about five years to tighten it up to write it. But when I realized that my work was being taken, um, I had a total of about four months to tighten it up and to get it ready before my school year started. And so all summer, I had to work, 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 really look at developing it more, uh, going back in and doing some tightening up. So in the process of tightening it up and getting it to this finished project, which has been so well received all over the world, you work with some really heavy hitters, some big names. Talk about those folks and how they contributed to the process. First of all, I am so honored that the Reverend Jesse L. Jackson Sr. was able to do my forward for me. And you always want to get a big name, but most importantly, not just a big name, but someone who had a direct connection to the subject at hand. And a lot of people don't realize that Reverend Jackson's career 
Uh, he got his start at Johnson Publishing Company, and many people don't know that. And I knew throughout the years of working with Mr. Johnson, I would see Reverend come by the building. Uh, they were always together. I knew yeah. Reverend Jackson always called him Godfather. The relationship <laughs> was there, and it was evident and obvious. But I didn't know the extent of it. And it was actually in 2010, I would say, uh, going back to Reverend Jackson and how he was pivotal in my life, because in 2010, when I decided to get my doctorate, I remember actually working on a story called Legend. And the legend was on the anniversary of the company, and it was about John H. Johnson. And that was when I had that moment. And I had to go to Operation Push, and I had to interview Reverend Jackson. Okay. And I remember that was when he told me about his relationship, the connection, and that stood out to me. So wow. when it came time to move forward, that was something that uh, was a given. But interestingly enough, I had reached out to someone else uh -huh. only because I was coming to this roadblock of having a difficult time trying to get rid of because of the gatekeeper. There was a gatekeeper that was kind of uh, making it difficult. And I was like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> so, you know, the, the other person, you know, had some things to put in place. And I'm like, ah, okay. So I'm like, oh, I have to go back to real. And I looked at that as saying that Mr. Johnson was saying, now, Marquina, now, Will, you need to go back to real. That is who I want that. to be my father. <laughs> I do not want anyone else to do my story but live. Now, you have to find a way to go back. That's a good impersonation. I, yeah, I, I went back to him, and it was like, I would say that this process has been in divine order because yeah. when I went back, my attorney, we were talking, and I told him I finished the book, and he was like, well, is there anything else you need? He's the type of man, if he asks, is there anything else you need, he means it. Some people say, if you need something else, but they don't really mean it. So I told him, I, I, you know, I have everything in place, but I'm really trying to get to Reverend Jackson. And he tells me, you know what? I know the guy who's with him just about every day. And he said, I can reach out to him. So he ended up reaching out to a man who ended up really helping me and helping Rev. And we put the thing together. And not only was he able to do the forward, but he actually had me go to Operation Push and to talk about the book on his broadcast. Uh, he had a day where I actually went for book signing as well. So I'm so very pleased, so very grateful, and, and also today the day, and that's the person who was the person who helped me to get to Reverend Jackson. And this was a cute twist, because I'm a huge Prince fan, for people who know, so I <laughs> yes, really got to pick... I got a kick, and I had no clue. I didn't put two and two together that day and day that he happens to be more as Dave's brother. So I just oh, really yes, connection. Yes, okay. Yeah, so I thought that was the, the cutest thing in the world. But I was like, oh, wow. So once again, everything is kind of in divine, divine order. order. Um, it worked out the way it was supposed to. And I would say the one thing I'm learning something very valuable that I learned in grad school, and that's to trust the process. Yes. Those were just words, but now I actually know what it means to trust the process because had A didn't happen, then B wouldn't have happened, then C mm -hmm. wouldn't have happened, and I wouldn't be where I am. 
I wouldn't have these experiences. If you don't have a test, you don't have a testimony. Preach and if you don't have Christian. a problem, Preach. you don't have a gift. Woo! And if you don't have a disadvantage, you won't recognize and appreciate the advantage. So even in the roadblock to getting to Reverend Jackson, it proved to have been a blessing in disguise yeah. because it ended up happening the way it was supposed to. And that's what I've learned is to trust the process. And let's talk about the process of where you are now, because I know there's been some interest from a lot of folks or some people in general about this process perhaps becoming a movie. Is there something you can talk with us about that or anything you can say? Do you see it happening as becoming a movie? I see it happening, falling in line just as it did for Andy Weir. Yes. Uh, there is interest in doing a possible movie. And that's something I'm excited about, something that I could definitely envision. Um, because anyone who knew John H. Johnson would know that he was quite a colorful uh, character, a uh, renowned businessman, no. but he had much flavor to put in mind. <laughs> to put in mind. Um, <laughs> never a dull moment with him. So it would definitely be a wonderful way to document history for those who may not necessarily read but who want to see what his life was like on a larger scale in some kind of way. So, yes, that's definitely a possibility, and I yes. am open and welcoming it as we speak. Well, I am so excited. I cannot wait to see it on the big screen. I think it's a wonderful story and deserves to be told. You told it wonderfully. Is there anything else, Dr. Christian, that would be really helpful to our listeners that you think would be really instrumental in the next generation kind of learning where to go? Because you've mapped out this roadmap and you're there and you're doing it. Anything else that you think is really helpful to share? What is helpful for those to follow would be to pay attention. Uh, to look at what's around you. And when it comes to history, to be careful whose hands it's in. Because I found that a lot of people historically have taken the history of people of color and they have shaped our narrative any way they want. And one thing that John Johnson did was he took back our name. He took back our story. He took back our history. And he didn't have and continue to allow others to define who we are as a race. And that's the same thing that I want others to understand and to know, is to be careful because history in the wrong hands will become his story. That's right. And black has become the new gold. And a lot of Ooh, people who don't nice. like me are trying to capture and take advantage of our stories, yeah. even if that means stealing our work in history. Mm. So I would say to keep your eyes open and, as they say, woke yes. when it comes to stories, to look at who is telling the story, who is shaping the story, and most importantly, to understand that we can speak in our own name. And that is something that takes place when we have agency. Not only are we doing it for others, but we're doing it for self. We must document our history. We must make certain that our legacies continue to thrive and survive. Because if we don't have gatekeepers who look like us yes. sharing our story, we will have people from other countries stealing our stories and our work and having people in our country helping them to do that kind of thing. 
and it happens more often than not. It's important that we continue to speak in our name because we have power. We have what it takes to continue to keep our legacies alive. Amen. That is a wonderful message and you are telling it like no other. Thank you, Dr. Christian, so much for joining us. And please, if you have not already, pick up a copy of Empire, the house that John H. Johnson built by Dr. Margina Christian. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Dr. Christian, for sharing such an amazing story with us today. That was great insight, great guidance. So if you're thinking of writing a book, remember, protect your work, research the market, and above all, own your work. Dr. Christian owns the right to her book, and now she may very well be headed toward a movie deal. We will have to wait and see. So pick up your copy today, available on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, and directly on her website at marginachristian.com. Click the link below in our show notes to get your copy today. Get inspired, get empowered. Thanks again so much to Dr. Christian. Thank you all for joining us for another episode of Pivotal Moment. I'm your host, Nikita Faustin. We'll talk to you next time.